Sharon Harrigan's debut novel, Half, features twins, Artis and Paula, and their complicated relationship with their father. The girls are named for the Greek gods Artemis and Apollo, and they seem to perceive their own father as an all-powerful mythic Zeus figure, part god and part monster. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In the novel Half, Sharon Harrigan uses an interesting strategy of a single narrative point of view, a first-person plural for the twin protagonists Artis and Paula as they tell their story about growing up in Michigan and the extraordinary situations involving their father. We follow their lives through childhood, adolescence, college, and into their own adulthood. Secrets fill the lives of Artis and Paula throughout these years, and as we will see, explode when they are adults returning to their hometown to attend their father's funeral. We spoke to Sharon Harrigan about her novel, Half. In writing about twins, and writing about twins from a single point of view, that's really different. What made you want to tell the story this way? It it grew from the short story with the same name. And it came even it came uh, from an autobiographical moment in my life, even though the book itself is mostly not autobiographical, which is this moment when my brother and I were not twins. He's a year and a half older than me when we were five years old, just like the twins in my um, novel at the beginning. And we used to pretend to be babies and we would say, I'm half. How old are you? I'm half two, um, meaning I'm six months old. Um, so there is this idea of being so young and yet playing at the idea of being even younger. Like, how young can you be and still be nostalgic for um, a, a simpler time? Um, so, so it started out, you know, with that word, really, half. And then um, they half understand everything. They, of course, half don't understand anything, everything. So it's this misunderstanding. The way ch- children do must misunderstand, not really understanding what's real and what's not real. And yes, as you said, they're, uh, th- th- both of them are like two halves of one whole. And I tried to take that metaphor and make it uh, literal by giving them a single voice. They speak as, as, as we. But I just love this idea of babyfying things, looking back um, as they do in a way when they look at the mother with her her daycare that she runs out of the house where she sees where where the two girls see how the mother loves on these babies and so i i see also this this quality of of magic in everything that the girls are perceiving i mean they're still young but they're not as young as babies and yet we're in this mindset where everything is made everything's sort of imbued with this with this shine and this and this magic quality, I, I I don't know. There's just something about it that actually draws you into this twin world. You know, scholars often have said that twins, like twins in Shakespeare, for instance, are inherently comical. And I, you know, I get that, and there is some of that here too. Um, only in ways, I suppose, that there's this uncanny sort of quality that I think changes our sense as readers of what we sort of see as ordinary. 
Did you find that in writing too, like this quality in the in the twins that wasn't just comical, but that was so special in in how uncanny? Yeah, and you speak as if you know something. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm a twin. I'm, I mean, I'm a twin to a boy, and it's a very different kind of twinship. Uh, but I still swear that, uh, you know, that there are these un- uncanny features to our relationship. Yeah, and I'm, I'm all aware that every twin relationship is different from the other, just like every sibling relationship is different from the other. So I've had some twins read my book and say, yes, this is exactly, you know, what it feels like. And I have also had someone say, no, it's not really quite like that for me. Um, so I don't pretend to represent all twin relationships. This is one particular tr- twin relationship. And, and it's kind of also, it's literal, but it's also supposed to, for me, represent just siblings in general, that the, the sibling relationship we share so much, both genes and, and environment, um, who, who else is, is closer than that? And I was just so intrigued by this idea of how close can you be to someone else? Um, and, um, and so, of course, I thought, well, not just siblings, but siblings who are twins are, are really close. And how can I explore both the, yeah, the, the absurd and comical um, parts of that intimacy that you kind of push to its logical extreme, but, but also, um, you know, explore the, 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 the beauty and the tragedy. And, um, and also this kind of metaphor for our divided selves. Um, I had one... Um, writer who described my book in a way that I'm, I'm going to, um, if you'll humor me, I'm going to quote what she says because it, it really made a lot of sense to me. And she said that half is about what it means to be an angry, hurt, ambitious girl divided against herself, estranged from others, and unsure how to weigh the violence she's experienced with the alliances she needs. Mm. So I, I also think of the twin as sort of being a, a metaphor for the two halves of that we each have of ourselves. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Uh, it must be so gratifying at the same time to hear from other twins say that this is so accurate. I mean, of course, it can't be a universal twin experience that you're depicting here. So so I appreciate that. But you did a lot of research for this novel about twins. Mm-hmm, I did, yeah. Um so one of the books that I loved that really spurred me on um, was a memoir by Krista Parvani called Her. Uh, and if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a, it's about her experience with her identical twin. Um, and they were very close. Um, they, were, they were both visual artists. And um, her, her, her twin actually ended up committing suicide um, in her early 20s. And um, the... The closeness of that relationship and having to really feel like half of you is missing. Um, the way that she described it was so palpable and and kind of magical. Um, and the way so both the way that she described their closeness when her sister was alive and then that missing half um, when she was gone um, really spoke to me. And um, and I I was um, kind of following that spirit in, in my novel. I do appreciate what you said about how this could really be a story about just the individual self with the with these two sides. I mean, the girls bond 
their, their bond is so deep, but one of the features of, of their bond has to do with this idea of fending off their abusive father and fretting over their mother, who's sort of this other victim of the father's control. And it's sort of like, they're not, they're not two against one in that battle or in that equation. It's almost like one artist looks over at Paula and just just to sort of say, is this really happening? <laughs> I mean, because there there are some very severe things that occur um, to the girls at the hands of their father. Um, and then there's a question, right, about did this really happen? And I, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything for the for folks who are going to pick up this book after they hear this interview. But there there is this bond with the girls that seems to be most elemented for us by way of how they deal with, with their parents. Yeah, and, and that um, came from my life too because um, I didn't have the same traumatic experience that my characters have, but I did have a traumatic experience. When I was seven years old, my father died in a mysterious, bizarre um, accident oh. um, that it took me until I was an adult to figure out what really happened. And um, so my brother and I, he was just a little bit older than me, I was seven. We didn't understand it and people kind of wanted us to respond in some way or say what we were feeling and we couldn't. And I, I felt like the two of us together could just be together and just know what the other was feeling and not have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of, you know, as I think back on it, felt like we were reading each other's minds, but we were really just kind of quietly being together and, and, and knowing that we'd both experienced the same thing and that we didn't have to explain to each other. Um, and I think trauma, um, you know, sort of protecting yourselves because a traumatic event happened, um, I think it can make people closer, especially children. And so, um, and I think a lot of children, unfortunately, do go through trauma in their early lives. So, so this was... Um, this was, this was something that, that felt powerful to me to put in the book. Another aspect of this to bring forth is this child's perspective. I mean, the novel takes us from the childhoods of artists and Paula to adulthood. It's so interesting to see how the narrative changes from this kind of twinned point of view of, of we to the single point of view of the adults. And again, I won't spoil it, but... We go with them through adolescence, but and those shifts, I was just amazed going page by page of what I must tell you is a very beautiful book. I just love the the layout of the book. <laughs> I mean, even the paper. Oh. It's just such a gorgeous <laughs> book. Um, oh, thank you so much. It's it's just lovely. Um, and so it, we move and with the shifts page after page, and it's so subtle, and you just see from page to page, it's not just like these chronic angers and terrible situations that the girls are describing or that, that, that this um, sort of plural singular narrator is describing, but it is moving the needle incrementally. It's just so fantastic to study that, to try to figure out how in the world you did that. But it is an unmistakable, albeit seamless, change was it was it challenging for you to write the narration this way yeah the, I mean a lot of things about the book 
was challenging. Um, one of the things that inspired me was a movie by Richard Linkletter called Boyhood, um, which takes place over 12 years. They actually filmed it over 12 years, um, starting when the title character was six and going until he was 18. Um, and they're just like the epiphanies, the, the essential moments, um, you know, the essential moments of being eight years old, the essential moments of being nine and 10 and 11. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was trying to get those essential moments um, that move my characters forward in their lives too, and to make a coming of age that felt like you could see the movement of them growing up and um, separating from their parents, forming their own identities, becoming disillusioned about things, understanding reality more, separated from fantasy, all those things that, it, what it means to to grow up. Um, so I wanted to have it like that movie uh, move forward incrementally um, but then I also wanted to have a sense that it was moving towards something, you know, mm-hmm. that there was a through line. Um, and for me, that came to, that's why it's framed the way it is, that it begins with the girls as adults coming uh, back home to Michigan for their father's funeral and uh, having some questions come up about what really happened in their childhood, and um, and so those questions kind of move them forward to review their childhood. So I wanted to have sort of both this episodic feel of this is what it really feels like for a life to unfurl and for someone to to come of age, but then I wanted there to be a more propulsive um, sense of questions at the beginning getting answered and, and having that urgency of plot too. Um, I don't know if you noticed, and maybe it's best if you didn't, um, that each chapter covers one year. So I did. the first, yeah, the first, the first chapter, they're five, the second chapter, they're six, et cetera. Yeah. But I hear what you're saying about, I feel sometimes like when we, we can think back on how we felt as children, like just the hours <laughs> stretching out before us, like on a summer afternoon when maybe there was, it was too hot to go outside and there was nothing to do, but it, it just feels like in in retrospect, everything just was so ramped up with tension and and meaning, right? I feel sometimes like even in this novel where the elements, the natural elements um, become part of some of the conflicts, some of the problems that the girls face, it seems like the sisters are they're always either freezing in the snow or they're sweltering, they're sweating in the sweltering heat. Or, you know, this, there's a lot here that's so tactile, that's so acutely wrapped up in sensory imagery that I think children are very um, open to and perceptive of. The idea that they have of their father controlling Everything, including the weather, was very interesting to me. But really, I kept thinking about the child's point of view being so acutely sensitive and aware of these tactile, what's scratchy, the the blanket or the pajamas or the bricks when they're standing against the brick wall. It's that this this awareness of what's tactile. And then that fills out the narration so beautifully. And then even into adolescence where it feels like 
the olfactory, the sense of smell is in overdrive when they're hugging a boy or, or something like that. I just, I was so struck by the, that sort of the, the sensory imagery in the, in the novel. Um, I'm just so struck by that, how those things are, the sensory imagery is sort of infused in some of the conflicts that the girls face in, in just the, their daily lives. Yeah, well, that was a very beautiful, close reading, and I so much appreciate it. It's, um, it's, it's what I meant, so I, I'm, I'm glad that it came through. Um, yeah, I think the visceral quality, the quality of like really being inside their bodies as well as in their heads um, was, was something um, in, intentional. And I wanted it to give it the book a mythic quality. I wanted it to, to be both um, timely in that they're living in our world right now and dealing with things that are very current. But I also wanted there to be a timeless element. And, um, and to me, the natural world and the visceral physical quality were things that I, wanted, that I thought would emphasize that timeless quality. Um, and then also the sense of them, um, their claustrophobia in a way of, of kind of being this two-person unit um, and kind of communicating with these physical gestures um, and, and being so close, they're almost in the same body. Um, that, that felt to me like, um, you know, that was the spirit of what I was trying to get at. Um, and yeah, there's like the sticky cherry lip gloss um, and uh, there's a lot of tactile and, and, and smell um, which I think gives it a, a, a magical quality too. Um, I'm kind of skirting on the edge, I think, between realism and, and magic some of the time, just the way that children do too. And, and, and my characters, even though they do grow up into adulthood, there's a sense of part of them being left in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something here that makes me see that the girls, exactly as you say, are endowing their father with m- magical and and mythological abilities. I mean, so they're named for Artemis and Apollo. And there's also this interesting idea about the father being um, monstrous and heroic, right? These elements of mythology here too, where he's almost like this Zeus figure that, and there's a reference to that, um, what they learn about mythology in their college course, for instance. So I'm wondering about that too, just in terms of how you were thinking about developing their story um, with this timelessness, but then also sort of like this um, this undercurrent of of Greek mythology. Um, yeah, I think it um, the father can be read as a mythic figure for sure, but he can also be read as someone, you know, who's in the news every day in our times. I mean, I think there are a number of these kind of monstrous, charismatic men, probably mostly men, but maybe women too, um, who have these, you know, cult-like followings and and who are magnetic and who have the ability to gaslight people um, and have are both kind of worshipped and reviled at the same time or depending on who you talk to. Um, so I, I, I took, I wanted it like to be very steeped in our moment in time, but then also to realize that the kind of, these kind of people have existed 
since the beginning of time, and 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 we didn't invent this kind of um, sort of god monster. Um, but then I also didn't want him to be a flat character, and I wanted there to be a sense of um, his humanity and a sense of the girls owing what they become to him and being in, and becoming like him too, and having to acknowledge that what they owe him. Um, I, you know, char- villains are wonderful, but they're much more interesting if they're rounded and human and have s- strengths and weaknesses, and if we can see ourselves in them. I so appreciated that about both the mother and the father. They're just extremely complicated characters. I always, you know, I think about how, you know, parents just do the best that they can. um, And they're not, you know, generally speaking, these, as you say, these flat characters, these one-dimensional, one-note characters. So sometimes when the girls assumed you know, the father was going to remove his belt and do something terrible um, and show his anger, he would do the exact opposite. And they could never really predict. And sometimes that was part of the the stress for them was how unpredictable he, uh, the father's character is in terms of his anger and his reactions to some of the things that the girls do. And I think that a lot of the time he was just so impressed with them um, because they are again, magically, these forces, they're, they're talented in myriad ways, um, sort of in spite of everything. Um, so I, I feel like it's all of a piece that just the, the level of complexity of these characters, the mother is not just a victim, there's a lot more going on with the mother, she's just an extremely complex figure. So I just appreciate that very much about uh, the mother and the father in this novel. Oh, thank you. That's that's a really beautiful reading. Um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but I really did want their th- three parts, and I kind of wanted the end part three when they when they divide in half um, for there to be a lot of surprises mm-hmm. uh, for the for the reader um, because I think we often come up with these ideas that we hold so firmly about the people we know and how we grew up and, uh, and what really happened. And then sometimes, you know, we kind of polish these memories so much and we don't question them. And sometimes they end up really not being that accurate. Um, so I think it's true to life to, to have some surprises. Um, and surprises often, I think, do come up when someone dies. Um, so that's what happens in the book at the, the funeral kind of is the, is the impetus for them to look back and question and have other people, including the mother, um, tell them what they really, what, what they maybe got wrong. There is something that happens with siblings, I think, around this notion of memory and family lore and, uh, you know, what happened to whom sometimes becomes conflated, um, so, you know, I find this idea very interesting in a story about twins. Who who said it? Who was the one? Who was, you know, who did this happen to? Um, but yeah, and I think sometimes, as you say, a death in the family is what um, sort of, it, yeah, churns all that up for people who are starting to think back or wanting to look for answers or figure things out. So it's an, it's a level of complexity, as you say, with in part three with these surprises. Um, 
that you that that are exactly that, that are exactly surprises that you don't expect. Um, so, but the girls have, um, again, not to give too much away, but it does happen and it's, it's just remarkable. They do have this Corsican way of, of existing, even when they're apart, even when they're not living together, where one can feel or perceive something that the other is going through that I've, and, and I didn't think of it necessarily as, as magical or, or magic realism or fant- I, I found it very normal and acceptable as reality in the novel. Well, that's wonderful to hear, especially from someone who is a twin. Yeah. Um, I did, I did worry, um, of course, about writing about a group I'm not a part of. I'm not a twin. Um, so I, you know, I showed it to some people I know who are twins and I, and, um, I have a friend who's a twin and who had told me about things that had happened to her, you know, of, of sort of something ha- being, being not in the same physical space, like, you know, hundreds of miles away and something happened to her sister and she had a, she had a sense that something was wrong. And this happened, you know, more times than would just be coincidence. Um, so I was really intrigued by this idea. Um, I, I think we have to be open to um, to that being possibly a reality. Oh, I absolutely uh, agree. Yeah. Um, and another thing I, I, I wanted to um, to show is like how people respond to twins. Um, and this a friend of mine who's a twin told me about that too. Um, that people would sometimes act as if they're interchangeable and this would kind of drive her crazy. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so in my, the first, uh, the, the first page of my book, I, I, I tell the reader, you know, um, I explain, um, how to read the book. It's in a wee voice. I say, um, you know, as identical twins, we spoke in the same voice. Then I say, people responded to us at least as if we did. So that's a pretty important distinction for me that it's not, there's this question about, um, how people treat twins. Yes. Yeah, and I'm thinking now about this the spelling bee. I mean, somebody had to lose. <laughs> somebody had to yeah. win. <laughs> you know, the, and those kinds of things that that twins experience, or t- when they do have to separate, or they do have um, to to make their own lives, and they have their own relationships and their own marriage and their own family, etc. So, I mean, I I do think that that's uh, that is an important distinction to to make. Now, you're the author of the memoir Playing with Dynamite. Yes. And and now you have your novel Half. And I'm wondering about, so Half came out in 2020. I'm, I'm wondering about the, the pandemic in 2020 and now into this year. I'm wondering about your writing life. Has it changed at all? What's it been like to talk about half with audiences now during the pandemic since you had the experience pre-pandemic of talking about playing with dynamite? What's what's that been like for you? Um, yeah, I think all authors publishing during the pandemic have had to make a shift, a pivot online. And, um, you know, online events are great and you, there's a possibility of, people tuning in from all over the world. So there are definitely some benefits. Um, and I've been attending a lot of those kind of events myself and getting to hear readings that I wouldn't normally get to hear. Um, of course, I, you know, I, I think we've all said that we miss the in-person. 
there's um, there's something about having someone come up to you at the end and person gives you a hug or you sign the book. Um, so that, that in-person contact, I think, is something we all crave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm teaching. I teach creative writing, and we pivoted online for that, too. Um, so, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the pandemic being over and being able to do some, some in-person events, but it's, but it's been great. I mean, doing podcasts is really wonderful. It's, it's, um, I've become a, such a listener to podcasts, too. Um, so it's, uh, that's definitely something that I have done more of, and I'm so glad to be doing more of um, during the pandemic. But, um, yeah, book festivals um, and those kinds of things um, are not quite the same online. Sharon Harrigan, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for such a beautiful close read. I'm, I, I really enjoyed talking to you so much. Sharon Harrigan is the author of Half. It's published by the University of Wisconsin Press. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. We also had help this week from Kathleen Creedon. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>